0: Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain. Chapter One, Part Three On the door in one of the dormitories where Lax and Cy Friedgood were living in a state of chaos was a large gray picture, a lithograph print. The subject was a man, a Hindu, with wide open eyes and a rather frightened expression, sitting cross-legged in white garments. I asked about it, and I could not figure out whether the answer was derisive or respectful. Lack said someone had thrown a knife at the picture, and the knife had bounced back and nearly cut all their heads off. In other words, he gave me to understand that the picture had something intrinsically holy about it. That accounted for the respect and derision manifested towards it by all my friends. This mixture was their standard acknowledgment of all the supernatural, or what was considered to be supernatural. How that picture happened to get on that door in that room is a strange story. It represented a Hindu messiah, a savior sent to India in our own times called Jagad Bandhu. His mission had to do with universal peace and brotherhood. He had died not very long before and had left a strong following in India. He was, as it were, in the role of a saint who had founded a new religious order, although he was considered more than a saint He was the latest incarnation of the Godhead, according to the Hindu belief in a multiplicity of incarnations. In 1932, a big official sort of letter was delivered to one of the monasteries of this new order outside of Calcutta. The letter came from the Chicago World's Fair, which was to be held in the following year. How they ever heard of this monastery, I cannot imagine. The letter was a formal announcement of a World Congress of Religions. I am writing this all from memory, but that is the substance of the story. They invited the abbot of this monastery to send a representative to Congress. I get this picture of the monastery. It is called Sri Angan, meaning the playground. It consists of an enclosure and many huts or cells, to use an Occidental term. The monks are quiet, simple men. They live what we would call a liturgical life, very closely integrated with the cycle of the seasons and of nature. In fact, the chief characteristic of their worship seemed to be this deep, harmonious identification with all living things, in praising God. Their praise itself is expressed in songs accompanied by drums and primitive instruments, flutes and pipes. There is much ceremonial dancing. In addition to that, there is a profound stress laid on a form of mental prayer, which is largely contemplative. The monk works himself into it by softly chanting lyrical aspirations to God and then remains in peaceful absorption in the absolute. For the rest, their life is extremely primitive and frugal. It is not so much what we would call austere. I do not think there are any fierce penances or mortifications. But nonetheless, the general level of poverty in Hindu society as a whole imposes on these monks a standard of living which most occidental religious would probably find unlivable. Their clothes consist of a turban and something thrown around the body in a robe. No shoes. Perhaps the robe is only for traveling. Their food, some rice, a few vegetables, a pieces of fruit. Of all that they do, they attach most importance to prayer, to praising God. They have a well-developed sense of the power and efficacy of prayer, based on a keen realization of the goodness of God. Their whole spirituality is childlike, simple, simple primitive, if you like, close to nature, ingenuous, optimistic, and happy. But the point is, although it may be no more than the full flowering of the natural virtue of religion with the other natural virtues, including a powerful natural charity, still, the life of these pagan monks is one of such purity and holiness and peace in the natural order that it may put to shame the actual conduct of many Christian religions, in spite of their advantages of constant access to all the means of grace. So this was the atmosphere into which the letter from Chicago dropped like a heavy stone. The abbot was pleased by the letter. He did not know what the Chicago World's Fair was. He did not understand that all these things were simply schemes for accumulating money. The World Congress of Religions appeared to him as something more than the fatuous scheme of a few restless, though probably sincere, minds. He seemed to see in it the first step towards the realization of the hopes of their beloved messiah, Jagad Bandhu. World peace, universal brotherhood. Perhaps now all religions would unite into one great universal religion, and all men would begin to praise God as brothers instead of tearing each other to pieces. At any rate, the abbot selected one of his monks and told him that he was to go to Chicago to the World Congress of Religions. This was a tremendous assignment. It was something far more terrible than any order given, for instance, to a newly ordained Capuchin to proceed to a mission in India. That would merely be a matter of a trained missionary going off to occupy a place that had been prepared for him. But here was a little man who had been born at the edge of a jungle, told to start out from a contemplative monastery and go not only into the world, but into the heart of a civilization of violence and materialism of which he could scarcely evaluate, and which raised goose flesh on every square inch of his body. What is more, he was told to undertake this journey without money. Not that money was prohibited to him, but they simply did not have any. His abbot managed to raise enough to get him a ticket for a little more than half the distance. After that, heaven would have to take care of him. By the time I met this poor little monk who had come to America without money, he had been living in the country for about five years and had acquired, of all things, the degree of Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Chicago, so that people referred to him as Dr. Brahmachari, although I believe that Brahmachari is simply a generic Hindu term for monk, and one that might almost be translated as little brother without the degree of doctor. How he got through all the red tape that stands between America and the penniless traveler is something that I have never quite understood, but it seems that officials, after questioning him, being completely overwhelmed by his simplicity, would either do something dishonest in his favor or else give him a tip as to how to beat the various technicalities. Some of them even lent him fairly large sums of money. In any case, he landed in America. The only trouble was that he got to Chicago after the World Congress of Religions was over. By that time, one look at the fair buildings, which were already being torn down, told him all he needed to know about the World Congress of Religions. But here he was. But once he was there, he did not have much trouble. People would see him standing around in the middle of railway stations waiting for Providence to do something about his plight. They would be intrigued by his turban and white garments, which were partly concealed by a brown overcoat in winter. They observed he was wearing a pair of sneakers, and perhaps that alone was enough to rouse their curiosity. He was frequently invited to give lectures to religious and social clubs and to schools and colleges, and he more than once spoke from the pulpits of Protestant churches. In this way, he managed to make a living for himself. Besides, he was always being hospitably entertained by people that he met, and he financed the stages of his journey by artlessly leaving his purse lying open on living room tables at night before his departure. The open mouth of the purse spoke eloquently to the hearts of his hosts, saying, As you see, I am empty, or perhaps... As you see, I am down to my last 15 cents. It was often enough filled up in the morning, and he got around. How did he run into Cy Friedgood? Well, Seymour's wife was studying at Chicago, and she met Brahmachuri there, and that Seymour met Brahmachuri, and Brahmachuri came to Long Beach once or twice and went out in Seymour's sailboat and wrote a poem which he gave to Seymour and Helen. He was very happy with Seymour because he did not have to answer so many stupid questions. After all, a lot of the people who befriended him were cranks and semi-maniacs and theosophists who thought they had some kind of a claim on him. They wearied him with their eccentricities, although he was a gentle and patient little man, but at Long Beach he was left in peace, although Seymour's ancient grandmother was not so easily convinced that he was not the hereditary enemy of the Jewish people. She moved around in the other room, lighting small religious lamps against the intruder. It was the end of the school year, June 1938, when Lax and Seymour already had a huge box in the middle of the room, which they were beginning to pack with books, when we heard Bramachuri was again in New York. I went down to meet him at Grand Central with Seymour, and it was not without a certain suppressed excitement that I did so, for Seymour had me all primed with a superb selection "'of lies about Brahmachori's ability to float in the air and walk on water. "'It was a long time before we found him in the crowd, "'although you would think that a Hindu in a turban and white robe "'and a pair of keds would have been a rather memorable sight, "'but all the people we asked concerning such a one "'had no idea of having seen him. "'We had been looking around for ten or fifteen minutes "'when a cat came walking cautiously through the crowd "'and passed us by with a kind of look and disappeared. "'That's him!' said Seymour. He changed himself into a cat. Doesn't like to attract attention, you know. Looking the place over, now he knows we're here. Almost at once, while Seymour was asking a porter if he had seen anything like Brahmachuri, and the porter was saying no, Brahmachuri came up behind us. I saw Seymour swing around and say in his rare, suave manner, Ah, Brahmachuri, how are you? There we stood, There stood a shy little man, very happy, with a huge smile, all teeth in the midst of his brown face, and on top of his head was a yellow turban with Hindu prayers written all over it in red, and on his feet, sure enough, sneakers. I shook hands with him, still worrying lest he give me some kind of an electric shock, but he didn't. We rode up to Columbia in the subway with all the people goggling at us, and I was asking Brahmachuri about... "'all the colleges he had been visiting. "'Did he like Smith? Did he like Harvard? "'When we were coming out into the air at 116th Street, "'I asked him which he liked best, "'and he told me that they were all the same to him. "'It had never occurred to him "'that one might have any special preference in such things. "'I lapsed into a reverent silence and pondered on this thought. "'I was now 23 years old, and indeed, "'I was more mature than that in some respects.' Surely by now it ought to have dawned on me that places did not especially matter. But no, I was very much attached to places and had very definite likes and dislikes for localities as such, especially colleges, since I was always thinking of finding one that was altogether pleasant to live and teach in. After that I became very fond of Brahmachuri and he of me. We got along very well together especially since he sensed that I was trying to feel my way into a settled religious conviction and into some kind of a life that was centered, as he was, on God. The thing that strikes me now is that he never attempted to explain his own religious beliefs to me, except some of the externals of the cult, and that was later on. He would no doubt have told me all I wanted to know if I had asked him, but I was not curious enough. What was most valuable to me was to hear his evaluation of the society and religious beliefs he had come across in America. And to put it all down on paper would require another book. He was never sarcastic, never ironical or unkind in his criticisms. In fact, he did not make many judgments at all, especially adverse ones. He would simply make statements of fact and then burst out laughing. His laughter was quiet and ingenuous, and it expressed his complete amazement at the very possibility that people should live the way he saw them, living all around him. He was beyond laughing at the noise and violence of American city life and all the obvious lunacies like radio programs and billboard advertising. It was some of the well-meaning idealisms he came across that struck him as funny. And one of the things that struck him as funniest of all was the eagerness with which Protestant ministers used to come up and ask him if India was by now nearly converted to Protestantism. He used to tell us how far India was from conversion to Protestantism, or Catholicism for that matter. One of the chief reasons he gave for the failure of any Christian missionaries to really strike deeply into the tremendous populations of Asia was the fact that they maintained themselves on a social level that was too far above the natives. The Church of England, indeed, thought they would convert the Indians by maintaining a strict separation, white men in one church, natives in a different church, both of them listening to sermons on brotherly love and unity. But all Christian missionaries, according to him, suffered from this big drawback. They lived too well, too comfortably. They took care of themselves in a way that simply made it impossible for the Hindus to regard them as holy, let alone the fact that they ate meat, which made them repugnant to the natives. I don't know much about missionaries, but I'm sure that by our own standards of living, their life is an arduous and difficult one, and certainly not one that could be regarded as comfortable. And by comparison with life in Europe and America, it represents a tremendous sacrifice. Yet I suppose it would literally endanger their lives if they tried to subsist on the standard of living with which the vast majority of Asiatics have to be content. It seems hard to expect them to go around barefoot and sleeping on mats and living in huts, but one thing is certain, the pagans have their own notions of holiness, and it is one that includes a prominent element of asceticism. According to Brahmachuri, the prevailing impression among the Hindus seems to be that Christians don't know what asceticism is. Of course, he was talking principally of Protestant missionaries, but I suppose it would apply to anyone coming to a tropical climate from one of the so-called civilized countries. For my own part, I see no reason for discouragement. Brahmachuri was simply saying something that has long since been familiar to the readers of the Gospels. Unless the grain of wheat falling to the ground die, it itself remaineth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. The Hindus are not looking for us to send them men who will build schools and hospitals, although those things are good and useful in themselves and perhaps very badly needed in India, they want to know if we have any saints to send them. There is no doubt in my mind that plenty of our missionaries are saints, and that they are capable of becoming greater saints too, and that is all that is needed. And, after all, St. Francis Xavier converted hundreds of thousands of Hindus in the 16th century and established Christian societies in Asia strong enough to survive for several centuries without any material support from outside the Catholic world. Brahmachuri was not telling me anything I did not know about the Church of England or about the other Protestant sects he had come into contact with, but I was interested to hear his opinion of the Catholics. They, of course, had not invited him to preach in their pulpits, but he had gone into a few Catholic churches out of curiosity. He told me that these were the only ones in which he really felt the people were praying. It was only there that religion seemed to have achieved any degree of vitality among us, as far as he could see. It was only to Catholics that the love of God seemed to be a matter of real concern, something that struck deeply into their natures, not merely pious speculation or sentiment. However, when he described his visit to a big Benedictine monastery in the Midwest, he began to grin again. He said that they had showed him a lot of workshops and machinery and printing presses, and taken him over the whole plant, as if they were very wrapped up in all the buildings and enterprises. He got the impression that they were more absorbed in printing and writing and teaching than they were in praying. Bramachuri was not the kind of man to be impressed with such statements as, there's a quarter of a million dollars worth of stained glass in that church. The organ has got six banks of keys, and it contains drums and bells and a mechanical nightingale, and the retable is a genuine bas-relief by a real live Italian artist. The people he had the least respect for were all the borderline cases, the strange, eccentric sects, the Christian scientists, the Oxford group, and all the rest of them. That was, in a sense, very comforting. Not that I worried about them, but it confirmed in my mind my respect for him. He did not generally put his words in the form of advice, but the one counsel he did give me is something that I will not easily forget. There are many beautiful, mystical books written by the Christians, You should read St. Augustine's Confessions and the Imitation of Christ. He was speaking as if he took it for granted that most people in America had no idea that such books ever existed. He seemed to feel as if he were in possession of a truth that would come to most Americans as news, as if there was something in their own cultural heritage that they had long since forgotten, and he could not remind them of it. He repeated what he had said, not without a certain earnestness yes you must read those books it was not often that he spoke with this kind of emphasis now that i look back on those days it seems to me very probable that one of the reasons why god had brought him all the way from india was that he might say just that after all it is rather ironical that i turned spontaneously to the east in reading about mysticism as if there were little or nothing in the christian tradition I remember that I plowed through those heavy tomes of Father Regner's with the feeling that all this represented the highest development of religion on earth. The reason may have been that I came away from Huxley's ends and means with the prejudice that Christianity was a less pure religion because it was more immersed in matter. That is, because it did not scorn to use a sacramental liturgy that relied on the appeal of created things to the senses In order to raise the souls of men to higher things. So now I was told that I ought to turn to the Christian tradition, to St. Augustine, and told this by a Hindu monk. Still, perhaps if he had never given me that piece of advice, I would have ended up in the Fathers of the Church and Scholasticism after all, because a fortunate discovery in the course of my work on my MA thesis put me fairly and definitively on that track at last, That discovery was one book that untied all the knots in the problems which I had set myself to solve by my thesis. It was Jacques Maritain's Art and Scholasticism. Part 4 The last week of that school year at Columbia had been rather chaotic. Lax and Friedgood had been making futile efforts to get their belongings together and go home. Brahmachuri was living in their room, perched on top of a pile of books. Lax was trying to finish a novel for Professor Nobb's course in novel writing, and all his friends had volunteered to take a section of the book and write it, simultaneously. But in the end, the book turned out to be more or less a three-cornered affair by Lax, me, and Donna Aiton. When Nob got the thing in his hands, he could not figure it out at all, but he gave us a B-, minus with which we were more than satisfied. Then Lax's mother had come to town, to live near him in the last furious weeks before graduation and catch him if he collapsed. He had to take most of his meals in the apartment she had rented in Butler Hall. I sometimes went along and helped him nibble the various health foods. At the same time, we were planning to get a ride on an old barge up the Hudson and the Erie Canal to Buffalo because Lax's brother-in-law was in the oil business. After that, we would go to the town where Lax lived, which was Oleanne, up in that corner of New York State. On class day, we leaned out the window of Lax's room and drank a bottle of champagne, looking at the sun on South Field and watching the people beginning to gather under the trees in front of Hamilton, where we would all presently hear some speeches and shake hands with Nicholas Murray Butler. It was not my business to graduate that June at all. My graduation was all over when I picked up my degree at the registrar's office the previous February. However, I borrowed the cap and gown, which Donna Eaton had graduated from Barnard a year before in, and went and sat with all the rest, mocking the speeches, with the edge of my sobriety slightly dulled by the celebration that had just taken place with the champagne and Fernald. Finally, we all got up and filed slowly up the rickety wooden steps to the temporary platform to shake hands with all the officials. President Butler was a much smaller man than I had expected, He looked intensely miserable and murmured something or other to each student as he shook hands. It was inaudible. I was given to understand that for the past six or seven years, people had been in the habit of insulting him on these occasions as a kind of farewell. I didn't say anything. I just shook his hand and passed on. The next one I came to was Dean Hawks, who looked up with surprise from under his bushy white eyebrows and growled, What are you doing here? I smiled and passed on. We did not get the ride on the oil barge, after all, but went to Olean on a train, and for the first time I saw a part of the world in which I was one day going to learn how to be very happy, and that day was not now very far away. It is the association of that happiness which makes upper New York State seem in my memory to be so beautiful, but it is objectively so, and there is no doubt of that. Those deep valleys and miles and miles of high rolling wooded hills, the broad fields, the big red barns, the white farmhouses and peaceful towns. All this looked more and more impressive and fine in the long slanting rays of the sinking sun after we had passed Elmira. You began to get some feeling of the bigness of America and to develop a continental sense of the scope of the country and of the vast clear sky as the train went on for mile after mile and hour after hour and the color and freshness and bigness and richness of the land the cleanness of it, the wholesomeness. This was new, and yet it was an old country. It was mellow country. It had been cleared and settled for much more than a hundred years. When we got out at Olean, we breathed its health and listened to its silence. I did not stay there for more than a week, being impatient to get back to New York on account of being as usual in love. One of the things we happened to do was to turn off the main road one afternoon on the way to the Indian Reservation to look at the plain brick buildings of a college that was run by the Franciscans. It was called St. Bonaventure's. Lax had a good feeling about the place, and his mother was always taking courses there in the evenings, courses in literature from the friars. He was a good friend of the father librarian and liked the library. We drove into the grounds and stopped by one of the buildings. But when Lax tried to make me get out of the car, I would not. Let's get out of here, I said. Why? It's a nice place. It's okay, but let's get out of here. Let's go to the Indian Reservation. Don't you want to see the library? I can see enough of it from here. Let's get going. I don't know what was the matter. Perhaps I was scared of the thought of nuns and priests being all around me, the elemental fear of the citizen of hell, in the presence of anything that savors of the religious life, religious vows, official dedication to God through Christ too many crosses, too many holy statues, too much quiet and cheerfulness, too much pious optimism. It made me very uncomfortable. I had to flee. When I got back to New York, one of the first things I did was to break away at last from the household in Douglaston. The family had really practically dissolved with the death of my grandparents, and I could get a lot more work done if I did not have to spend so much time on subways and the Long Island train. One rainy day in June, then, I made a bargain with Herb, the colored taxi man at Douglaston, and he drove me and my bags and my books and my portable Vic and all my hot records and pictures to put on the wall and even a tennis racket, which I had never used, uptown to a rooming house on 114th Street, just behind the Columbia Library. All the way up, we discussed the possible reasons for the mysterious death of Rudolph Valentino, once a famous movie star. "'but it was certainly not what you would call a live issue. "'Valentino had died at least ten years before. "'This is a nice sweet spot you got,' said Herb, "'approving of the room I was renting for seven fifty a week. "'It was shiny and clean and filled with new furniture "'and had a big view of a pile of coal in a yard "'by the campus tennis courts, "'with Southfield and the steps of the old domed library beyond. "'The panorama even took in a couple of trees.' I guess you're going to have a pretty hot time now you got away from your folks, Herb remarked as he took his leave. Whatever else may have happened in that room, it was also there that I started to pray again, more or less regularly, and it was there that I added, as Brahmachuri had suggested, the imitation of Christ to my books, and it was from there that I was eventually to be driven out by an almost physical push to go and look for a priest. July came with its great, misty heats, and Columbia filled with all the thousands of plump, spectacled ladies in pink dresses from the Middle West and all the great gents in seersucker suits, all the dried-up high school principals from Indiana and Kansas and Iowa and Tennessee with their veins shriveled up with positivism and all the reactions of the behaviorists flickering behind their spectacles as they meditated on the truths they learned in those sweltering halls. The books piled higher and higher on my desk in the graduate reading room and in my lodgings. I was in the thick of my thesis, making hundreds of mistakes that I would not be able to detect for several years to come, because I was far out of my depth. Fortunately, nobody else detected them either, but for my own part, I was fairly happy and learning many things. The discipline of the work itself was good for me, and helped to cure me more than anything else of the illusion that my health was poor. And it was in the middle of all this that I discovered scholastic philosophy. The subject I had finally chosen for my thesis was Nature and Art in William Blake. I did not realize how providential a subject it actually was. What it amounted to was a study of Blake's reaction against every kind of literalism and naturalism and narrow classical realism in art because of his own ideal, which was essentially mystical and supernatural. In other words, the topic if I treated it at all sensibly, could not help but cure me of all the naturalism and materialism in my own philosophy, besides resolving all the inconsistencies and self-contradictions that had persisted in my own mind for years without my being able to explain them. After all, from my very childhood, I had understood that the artistic experience at its highest was actually a natural analog of mystical experience. It produced a kind of intuitive perception of reality through a sort of affective identification with the object contemplated, a kind of perception that the Thomists called connatural. This simply means a knowledge that comes about, as it were, by the identification of natures, in the way that a chaste man understands the nature of chastity because of the very fact that his soul is full of it. It is part of his own nature, since habit is second nature. Non-connatural knowledge of chastity would be that of a philosopher who, to borrow the language of the imitation, would be able to define it, but not able to possess it. I had learned from my own father that it was almost blasphemy to regard the function of art as merely to reproduce some kind of a sensible pleasure, or, at best, to stir up the emotions to a transitory thrill. I had always understood that art was contemplation, and that it involved the action of the highest faculties of man. When I was once able to discover the key to Blake in his rebellion against liberalism and naturalism in art, I saw that his prophetic books and the rest of his verse at large represented a rebellion against naturalism in the moral order as well. What a revelation that was. For at 16, I had imagined that Blake, like the other romantics, was glorifying passion, natural energy for its own sake. Far from it. What he was glorifying was the transfiguration of man's natural love his natural powers in the refining fires of mystical experience, and that in itself implied an arduous and total purification by faith and love and desire from all the petty materialistic and commonplace and earthly ideals of his rationalistic friends. Blake, in his sweeping consistency, had developed a moral insight that cut through all the false distinctions of a worldly and interested morality, That was why he saw that in the legislation of men some evils had been set up as standards of right by which other evils were to be condemned and the norms of pride or greed had been established in the judgment seat to pronounce a crushing and inhuman indictment against all the normal healthy strivings of human nature. Love was outlawed and became lust. Pity was swallowed up in cruelty. And so Blake knew how. The harlot's cry from street to street, shall weave old England's winding sheet. I'd heard that cry and that echo. I'd seen that winding sheet. But I had understood nothing at all of it. I had tried to resolve it into a matter of sociological laws of economic forces. If I had been able to listen to Blake in those old days, he would have told me that sociology and economics, divorced from faith and charity, become nothing but the chains of his aged icy demon, Urizen. But now, reading Maritain, in connection with Blake, I saw all these difficulties and contradictions disappear. I, who had always been anti-naturalistic in art, had been a pure naturalist in the moral order. No wonder my soul was sick and torn apart. But now the bleeding wound was drawn together by the notion of Christian virtue, ordered to the union of the soul with God. The word virtue, what a faith it has had in the last 300 years, the fact that it is nowhere near so despised and ridiculed in Latin countries is a testimony to the fact that it suffered mostly from the mangling it underwent at the hands of Calvinists and Puritans. In our own days, the word leaves on the lips of cynical high school children a kind of flippant smear, and it is exploited in theatres for the possibilities it offers for lewd and cheesy sarcasm. Every one makes fun of virtue, which now has as its primary meaning an affectation of prudery practiced by hypocrites and the impotent. When Maritain, who is by no means bothered by such trivialities, in all simplicity went ahead to use the term in its scholastic sense and was able to apply it to art, a virtue of the practical intellect, the very newness of the context was enough to disinfect my mind of all the miasmas left by the ordinary prejudice against virtue, which, if it ever was strong in anybody, was strong in me. I was never a lover of Puritanism. Now at last I came around to the sane conception of virtue, without which there can be no happiness, because virtues are precisely the powers by which we come to acquire happiness. Without them there can be no joy, because they are the habits which coordinate and canalize our natural energies and direct them to the harmony and perfection and balance, the unity of our nature with itself and with God, which must, in the end, constitute our everlasting peace. By the time I was ready to begin the actual writing of my thesis, that is, around the beginning of September 1938, the groundwork of conversion was more or less complete, and how easily and sweetly it had all been done, with all the external graces that had been arranged along my path by the kind providence of God. It had taken little more than a year and a half, counting from the time I read Gilson's the spirit of medieval philosophy to bring me up from an atheist as I considered myself to one who accepted all the full range and possibilities of religious experience right up to the highest degree of glory. I not only accepted all this intellectually, but now I began to desire it. And not only did I begin to desire it, but I began to do so efficaciously. I began to want to take the necessary means to achieve this union, this peace. I began to desire to dedicate my life to God to his service. The notion was still vague and obscure, and it was ludicrously impractical in the sense that I was already dreaming of mystical union when I did not even keep the simplest rudiments of moral law. But nonetheless, I was convinced of the reality of the goal, and confident that it could be achieved, and whatever element of presumption was in this confidence, I am sure God excused in his mercy, because of my stupidity and helplessness, and because I was really beginning to be ready to do whatever I thought he wanted me to do to bring me to him. But oh, how weak and blind and sick I was, although I thought I saw where I was going and half understood the way. How deluded we sometimes are by the clear notions we get out of books. They make us think that we really understand things of which we have no practical knowledge at all. I remember how learnedly and enthusiastically I could talk for hours about mysticism, and the experimental knowledge of God, and all the while I was stoking the fires of the argument with scotch and soda. That was the way it turned out that Labor Day, for instance. I went to Philadelphia with Joe Roberts, who had a room in the same house as I, and who had been through all the battles on the fourth floor of John Jay for the past four years. He had graduated and was working on some trade magazine about women's hats. All one night we sat with a friend of his in a big, dark roadhouse outside of philadelphia arguing and arguing about mysticism and smoking more and more cigarettes and gradually getting drunk eventually filled with enthusiasm for the purity of heart which begets the vision of god i went on with them into the city after the closing of the bars to a big speakeasy where we completed the work of getting plastered my internal contradictions were resolving themselves out indeed but still only on the plane of theory and not of practice. Not for lack of goodwill, but because I was still so completely chained and fettered by my sins and my attachments. I think that if there is one truth that people need to learn in the world, especially today, it is this. The intellect is only theoretically independent of desire and appetite in ordinary actual practice. It is constantly being blinded and perverted by the ends and aims of passion and the evidence it presents to us with such a show of impartiality and objectivity is fraught with interest and in propaganda we have become marvelous at self-delusion all the more so because we have gone to such trouble to convince ourselves of our own absolute infallibility the desires of the flesh and by that I mean not only sinful desires, but even the ordinary normal appetites for comfort and ease and human respect, are fruitful sources of every kind of error and misjudgment, and because we have these yearnings in us, our intellects, which, if they operated all alone in a vacuum, would indeed register with pure impartiality what they saw, present to us everything distorted and accommodated to the norms of our desire. And therefore... Even when we are acting with the best of intentions, and imagine that we are doing great good, we may be actually doing tremendous material harm and contradicting all our good intentions. There are ways that seem to men to be good. The end whereof is in the depths of hell. The only answer to the problem is grace. Grace, docility to grace. I was still in the precarious position of being my own guide and my own interpreter of grace. It is a wonder I ever even got out of the harbor at all. Sometime in August, I finally answered an impulsion that had been working on me for a long time. Every Sunday I had been going out to Long Island to spend the day with the same girl who had brought me back in such a hurry from Lax's town, Ole But every week, as Sunday came around, I was filled with a growing desire to stay in the city and go to some kind of church. At first, I had vaguely thought I might try to find some Quakers and go and sit with them. There still remained in me something of the favorable notion about Quakers that I had picked up as a child and which the reading of William Penn had not been able to overcome. But naturally enough, with the work I was doing in the library, a stronger drive began to assert itself, and I was drawn much more imperatively to the Catholic Church. Finally, the urge became so strong I could not resist it, I called up my girl and told her that I was not coming out that weekend, and had made up my mind to go to Mass for the first time in my life. The first time in my life, that was true. I had lived for several years on the continent. I had been to Rome. I had been in and out of a thousand Catholic cathedrals and churches, and yet I had never heard Mass. If anything had ever been going on in the churches I visited, I had always fled in wild Protestant panic. I will not easily forget how I felt that day. First there was this sweet, strong, gentle, clean urge in me which said, Go to Mass. Go to Mass. It was something quite new and strange. This voice that seemed to prompt me, this firm, growing interior conviction of what I needed to do. It had a suavity, a simplicity about it that I could not easily account for. And when I gave in to it, it did not exalt over me and trample me down in its raging haste to land on its prey, but it carried me forward serenely and with purposeful direction. Now that does not mean that my emotions yielded to it altogether, quietly. I was really still a little afraid to go to a Catholic church, of set purpose, with all the other people, and dispose myself in a pew, and lay myself open to the mysterious perils of that strange and powerful thing that they called their Mass. God made it a very beautiful Sunday. And since it was the first time I had ever really spent a sober Sunday in New York, I was surprised at the clean, quiet atmosphere of the empty streets uptown. The sun was blazing bright. At the end of the street, as I came out of the front door, I could see a burst of green and the blue river and the hills of Jersey on the other side. Broadway was empty. A solitary trolley came speeding down in front of Barnard College and passed the school of journalism. Then, from the high gray expensive tower of the Rockefeller Church, huge bells began to boom. It served very well for the 11 o'clock mass at the little brick church of Corpus Christi, hidden behind Teachers College on 121st Street. How bright that little building seemed. Indeed, it was quite new. The sun shone on the clean bricks. People were going in the wide-open door into the cool darkness, and all at once all the churches of Italy and France came back to me. The richness and fullness of the atmosphere of Catholicism that I had not been able to avoid apprehending and loving as a child came back to me with a rush, but now I was to enter into it fully for the first time. So far, I had known nothing but the outward surface. It was a gay, clean church with big plain windows and white columns and pilasters and a well lit, simple sanctuary. Its style was a trifle eclectic, but much less perverted with incongruities than the average Catholic church in America. It had a kind of seventeenth century oratorian character about it, though with a sort of American colonial tinge of simplicity. The blend was effective and original, but although all this affected me, without my thinking about it, the thing that impressed me most was that the place was full, absolutely full. It was full not only of old ladies and broken-down gentlemen with one foot in the grave, but men and women and children, young and old, especially young, people of all classes and all ranks, on a solid foundation of workingness and women and their families. I found a place that I hoped would be obscure over on one side and in the back and went to it without genuflecting and knelt down. As I knelt, the first thing I noticed was a young girl, very pretty too, perhaps 15 or 16, kneeling straight up and praying quite seriously. I was very much impressed to see that someone who was so young and beautiful could, with such simplicity, make the prayer real and serious, and the principal reason for going to church. She was clearly kneeling that way because she meant it, not in order to show off, and she was praying with an absorption which though not the deep recollection of a saint, was serious enough to show that she was not thinking at all about the other people who were there. What a revelation it was to discover so many ordinary people in a place together, more conscious of God than of one another, not there to show off their hats or clothes, but to pray, or at least to fulfill a religious obligation, not a human one. For even those who might have been there for no better motive than that they were obliged to be, were least free from any of the self-conscious and human constraint which is never absent from a Protestant church, where people are definitely gathered together as people, as neighbors, and always have at least half an eye out for one another, if not all of both eyes. Since it was summertime, the 11 o'clock mass was a low mass, but I had not come expecting to hear music. Before I knew it, the priest was in the sanctuary with the two altar boys and was busy at the altar with something or other which I could not see very well. But the people were praying by themselves, and I was engrossed and absorbed in the thing as a whole, the business at the altar and the presence of the people. And still I had not got rid of my fear. Seeing the latecomers hastily genuflecting before entering the pew, I realized my omission and got the idea that people had spotted me for a pagan and were just waiting for me to miss a few more genuflections before throwing me out or at least giving me looks of reproof. Soon we all stood up. I did not know what it was for. The priest was at the other end of the altar, and, as I afterwards learned, he was reading the gospel. And then the next thing I knew, there was someone in the pulpit. It was a young priest, perhaps not much over thirty-three or four years old. His face was rather ascetic and thin, and its asceticism was heightened with a note of intellectuality by his horn-rimmed glasses, although he was only one of the assistants and he did not consider himself an intellectual, nor did anyone else apparently consider him so. But anyway, that was the impression he made on me, and his sermon, which was simple enough, did not belie it. It was not long, but to me, it was very interesting to hear this young man quietly telling the people in language that was plain, yet tinged with scholastic terminology about a point in Catholic doctrine, how clear and solid the doctrine was. For behind those words, you felt the full force not only of scripture, but of centuries of a unified and continuous and consistent tradition. And above all, it was a vital tradition. There was nothing studied or antique about it. These words, this terminology, this doctrine, and these convictions fell from the lips of the young priest as something that were most intimately part of his own life. What was more, I sensed that the people were familiar with it all, and that it was also, in due proportion, part of their life as well. It was just as much integrated into their spiritual organism as the air they breathed or the food that they ate worked its way into their blood and flesh. What was he saying? That Christ was the Son of God, that in him, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God, had assumed a human nature, a human body and soul, And had taken flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And that this man, whom men called Christ, was God. He was both man and God. Two natures hypostatically united in one person, or suppositum. One individual who was a divine person, having assumed to himself a human nature. And his works were the works of God. His acts, the acts of God. He loved us, God, and walked among us. God and died for us on the cross. God of God, light of light, true God of true God. Jesus Christ was not simply a man, a good man, a great man, the greatest prophet, a wonderful healer, a saint. He was something that made all such trivial words pale into irrelevance. He was God. But nevertheless, he was not merely a spirit without a true body, God hiding under a visionary body, He was also truly a man, born of flesh, of the most pure virgin, formed of her flesh by the Holy Spirit. And what he did in that flesh on earth, he did not only as man, but as God. He loved us as God, he suffered and died for us, God. And how do we know? Because it is revealed to us in scriptures, and confirmed by the teaching of the Church, and of the powerful unanimity of Catholic tradition from the first Apostles, and from the first popes and the early fathers, on down through the doctors of the church and the great scholastics to our own day. De fide divina. If you believed it, you would receive light to grasp it, to understand it in some measure. If you did not believe it, you would never understand it. It would never be anything but scandal or folly. And no one can believe these things merely by wanting to, of his own volition unless he received grace an actual light and impulsion of the mind and will from god he cannot even make an act of living faith it is god who gives us faith and no one cometh to christ unless the father draweth him i wonder what would have happened in my life if i had been given this grace in the days when i had almost discovered the divinity of christ in the ancient mosaics of the churches of rome What scores of self-murdering and Christ-murdering sins would have been avoided? All the filth I had plastered upon his image in my soul during those last five years that I had been scourging and crucifying God within me. It's easy to say, after all, that God had probably foreseen my infidelities and had never given me the grace in those days because he saw how I would waste and despise it. And perhaps that rejection, would have been my ruin. For there's no doubt that one of the reasons why grace is not given to souls is because they have so hardened their wills in greed and cruelty and selfishness that their refusal of it would only harden them more. But now I had been beaten into the semblance of some kind of humility by misery and confusion and perplexity and secret interior fear, and my plowed soul was better ground for the reception of good seed. The sermon was what I had most needed to hear that day. When the mass of the catechumens was over, I, who was not even a catechumen but only a blind and deaf and dumb pagan as weak and dirty as anything that had ever come out of the darkness of imperial Rome or Corinth or Ephesus, was not able to understand anything else. It all became completely mysterious when the attention was refocused on the altar, when the silence grew more and more profound, and little bells began to ring. I got scared again, and finally, genuflecting hastily on my left knee, I hurried out of the church in the middle of the most important part of the Mass. It was just as well. In a way, I suppose I was responding to a kind of liturgical instinct that told me I did not belong there for the celebration of the mysteries as such. I had no idea what took place in them, but the fact that Christ God would be visibly present on the altar in the sacred species... And although he was there, yes, for the love of me, yet he was there in his power and his might. And what was I? What was on my soul? What was I in his sight? It was liturgically fitting that I should kick myself out at the end of the mass of the catechumens when the ordained Ostiari should have been there to do it. Anyway, it was done. Now I walked leisurely down Broadway in the sun, and my eyes looked about me at a new world. I could not understand what it was that had happened to make me so happy. Why was I so much at peace, so content with life? For I was not yet used to the clean savor that comes with an actual grace. Indeed, there was no impossibility in a person's hearing and believing such a sermon and being justified, that is, receiving sanctifying grace in his soul as a habit and beginning from that moment to live the divine and supernatural life for good and all. But that is something I will not speculate about. All I know is that I walked in a new world. Even the ugly buildings of Columbia were transfigured in it. Everywhere was peace in these streets designed for violence and noise. Sitting outside the gloomy little child's restaurant at 111th Street, behind the dirty boxed brushes and eating breakfast, was like sitting the Elysian Fields.